Hi, I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're recording at Sirius XM. We're pleased to have two guests on the show this week, both making return visits. Robert Bader is a writer, editor, producer, archivist, author, with numerous television and documentary credits, including Dick Cavett's Vietnam, Dick Cavett's Watergate, You Bet Your Life, The Lost Episodes, and The Dawn of Sound, How Movies Learn to Talk. He's also the producer of the Marx Brothers TV collection and the editor of the book Groucho Marx and other short stories and telltales. And as discussed on this very show, he's also the author of the exhaustively researched and vastly impressive history of the Marx Brothers live performances, four of the three musketeers, the Marx Brothers on stage. Dick Cavett returns to the show for the fourth time. He's a writer, comedian, best-selling author, Emmy-winning talk show host, and one of the most admired pop culture icons of the last half century. In a long and very illustrious career, he's acted in feature films, TV shows, and Broadway stage production, hosted various specials and narrated documentaries, and as the host of various incarnations of The Dick Cavett Show, (laughs) conducted unforgettable interviews with such influential figures, including Woody Allen, Bob Hope, John Lennon, Lawrence Olivier, Salvador Dali, uh, Mae West, Betty Davis, Orson Welles, and of course his friend and comedy hero, Groucho Marx, just to name a few. Their latest project is the documentary Ali and Cavett, The Tale of the Tapes which can be seen on HBO on February 11th. Please welcome back two of our most entertaining and knowledgeable guests and two men who can tell you if Harpo really was stooping Amelia Earhart. (laughs) Dick Cavett and Robert Bader. Well, do we have any time left? I'm, I'm, now let let's start with the Amelia Earhart and Harpo. Were they fucking? I'm sorry, Gilbert. I wasn't listening. Could you run through that again? Okay. Hi, this is Gilbert. Let, 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 let me help you with Amelia. Yeah. Uh, that okay. is buried on something like page three hundred and eighty something as a footnote in this huge book. But you found your favorite thing in the uh, book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I found the most important part of it. What was that great photo of them? Yes, there's more than one great photo of them. I believe it to be true. So Harpo was fucking Amelia Earhart. Not just Harpo, apparently. She got around. 
Really? really? Who, what are the famous people? Well, I don't like to drop names, but <laughs> you know, his initials might be Cary Grant. Wow. Cary Grant? Or Marlena Dietrich. Wow. You're wow. breaking news, buddy. Wow. Dick, wow. Dick, you have a comment on this? Well, uh, hmm? <laughs> Amelia was never on the show. No, I just had a question. Dick there. also uh, fucked Amelia. <laughs> yeah. How, how do we how do we know all these things? That's fascinating. Stuff. That's um, a whole other show. Yeah, Amelia Earhart went up and went down. Apparently, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a long sort of bit of history about it, but Amelia married a guy named George Putnam, who was famous from Putnam's Publishers, and he moved oh. to Hollywood because she would only marry him if they moved to Hollywood. He got a job at Paramount, got her a studio pass, and she just loved hanging out with movie stars. And Gosh. she fucked all of them. Well, that could be, yeah. yeah. I think she missed Fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, hope you know, I should say there. one thing. <laughs> yes. The well. people who guard her legacy are extremely protective of it. Uh, her papers oh, are at the yeah. university oh, good. library. Oh, good. So we got a lawsuit uh, yeah, waiting for the, us. The, the Purdue University Library has her papers. They're very, very careful about who they'll let see anything. So I'm going to recommend that Ooh. you go there and they give you full access. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, Robert, i got to ask you a question that has nothing to do with anything else being discussed on this episode. Now, I know you're a Marx Brothers uh, expert, but... Uh, right before I left the house, they had on Stan and Ollie. Oh, yeah. And I'd like to know, with your whatever knowledge you have of Laurel and Hardy, uh, how accurate was that film? I'll let you know after I've seen it. You haven't seen it? <laughs> well, they, you know, pa- they painted Hal Roach in a, bad, I, I, I in a pretty to, bad light. I, I have to say something. Groucho used to love to tell this crazy story about being in New York City in a blizzard or something and he's trying to get a cab and a cop comes over to help him and he recognizes him and he goes, I just have one question to ask you and Groucho says, sure. He goes, why aren't there more Laurel and Hardy movies on television? Oh, gee. (laughs) (laughs) That's maybe the one thing Groucho couldn't answer. (laughs) You had your one chance to ask Groucho one question. That's hilarious. Well, Dick Dick knew Stan Laurel, so I'd be curious. Did you see the Stan and Ollie movie, Dick? Yes, I did. I saw it about a month ago, and I thought... I was. I knew I'd be disappointed because when people play famous people, they're never quite right. Right. This was perfection. Really, just great. What? Yeah. But they put they painted Hal Roach, who I under. Well, we know that Hal Roach was cozying up to Mussolini, but they they painted him in a rather unflattering unfla- uh, light in that film. Yeah. Well, they have a lot of unflattering light in, in the movie business. Uh, but you yeah, liked it. You liked the performances. Very much, yeah. Uh, and, and the script, I, I thought it was a good, really, really good movie. And I was sure uh, it wouldn't be better, any better than, oh, what was the dreadful famous person played so dreadfully a few years ago? Um, strangely enough, Rod Steiger's W.C. Fields. Oh, yeah. Was rather good. I yes, that was Valerie great. Perrine yeah. was in that yeah. one. Now, yeah. now, W.C. Fields and me. Yeah. Did you feel the story of the movie Stan and Ollie was accurate to the way their lives were? I don't know enough to know for sure. Um, I'd love to have one more chance to meet Stan Laurel and ask yeah. him about the <laughs> film. Maybe in my dreams. But uh, he, he told me that one time I met him, I was at his apartment. Behind him was the Pacific Ocean. 
what's that last drive called in California? Ocean Drive. Yeah, Ocean Drive. Oh, yeah. And it was so interesting to see this man of many years ago with framed against the Atlantic Ocean. <clears throat> and I asked him what he, if he saw Babe, as he was called, Hardy, often. And he said, I, I can do him, but I think it will become tedious, but maybe approximately. He said, well, the last time I saw Dave, Babe, it was Christmas. And uh, I went over to his apartment, and Lucille, was that his wife? Uh, opened the door, there was Babe and the Christmas tree. And I had taken him a very nice present. And it was obvious that he hadn't gotten one for me, which I guess was probably in keeping with their relationship. <laughs> it's kind of sad. Yeah. And he looked under the tree and he saw this gorgeous, expensive, famous bottle of brandy. I think it came from a museum or something. I said, but $1,000 worth of two worth of And he picked it up. And he said, he handed it out to me, and he said, you know, you can never find this brand in the liquor store these days and put it back under the <laughs> <laughs> So that was uh, something about them that was true. Now, w would you say that Stan and Ollie's relationship was at least better than Martin and Lewis's? It's a strange comparison. Um, they they occurred at different times yeah. in our lives, yeah. of course, uh, and they and they were two born performers. Jerry, of course, had done some performing. Um, hard to say. I I I, uh, I think they were brilliantly, perfectly matched by sheer accident. As these things often happen, and the fact that they didn't make a lot of point of seeing each other off camera doesn't bother me uh, I have a friend who's a fanatical fan of theirs and he got to meet Stan and then one day he drove to the Hillcrest Country Club and they said oh you just missed Oliver Hardy you just drove off in that car and then Hardy died or as we say passed but he both passed and died, <laughs> and uh, we're not in order. <laughs> um, and he never got over that the fact that he missed meeting Babe Hardy by almost inches. Um, I'd love to have met him. You came close to meeting Groucho as a as a kid and missed him by oh, a, by a few minutes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes. What a what an idiot savant you are. <laughs> 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 He's teeing it up for you, Gil. Uh, I was out in Hollywood. I didn't live here, obviously, and uh, I didn't live there either. Uh, I didn't live in Hollywood, uh, but my dad and I were out visiting some relatives of his, and I went to Farmer's Market, of course. I was about 12 years old, maybe. And I went up to a chicken leg stand to buy a chicken leg, and the lady said, oh, Hey, kid, you should have been here. Yeah, Groucho Marx was standing right where you are now. Oh. Uh, I thought, oh, no. I knew who Groucho Marx was, uh, for those who just arrived on this planet. And I couldn't bear it. I couldn't eat my chicken leg. I just thought, <laughs> Groucho <laughs> Marx was right here. And now he's out in that sea of people somewhere. 
my one chance to meet him. Fortunately, years later, I met him wholesale for years and was a friend of his and went to things with him and he'd come to see me and we really became good. And he was on my show a number of times. And by the way, Mr. Bader, who was introduced earlier, uh, ha had the good sense to notice that I had so many guest appearances with Groucho on my old shows that uh, why not put them into a special? He has. That's going to be the next project after. After. Oh, exciting! It's a scoop. He's just announced it. Yeah. <laughs> How many were there? There were five, seven, seven, seven appearances. He appeared on the morning show twice, which oh. were all pretty much erased by ABC. Yeah. But we've been able to uh, get all of one and most of another. So there is a, That's a great. half inch open reel video format from the 60s. And one of the other guests on that Groucho show from 68 was Frank Buxton, whose oh, name you, wow. may, you may know his we name. We just as, lost uh, him not long ago, yeah, Frank Buxton. And he was um, a director of The Odd Couple and Mork and Me. Sure. Very successful as and a director. Animation of voices, too. Yeah, and yeah. he was a good stand up comic. And um, he made a half inch open reel video of the show. And it was on a 60 minute tape, and it was a 90 minute show. So he just paused whenever Glenn Campbell was about to sing. Uh -huh. So that's missing from the tape. And then the other one, there's a, a kinescope, which is a film made off of television, of portions of that show. So we have enough representation of all seven of the shows. That's great. Yeah. I just watched the 69 and the 71. The I, I assume both of those were ABC shows. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 The 69 show is the tour it's of the great. forest Groucho show. It's, it's just an hour of solid Groucho. He's fantastic through the whole show. And the 71 show is kind of when Groucho's starting to get a little odd behaviorally. He gets political in that 71 gets, show, too. He takes oh, some, yeah. Yeah, takes some shots at Nixon and LBJ. and, and Yeah, he'd also previously been visited by the Secret Service because in an interview with some counterculture magazine called The Realist, um, maybe seven or eight months before that show, he said that it would be a great help to America if someone would have the good sense to assassinate Nixon. And they put this 81-year-old guy on the enemies list and visited him uh, to kind of make sure he wasn't a real threat. Fascinating. I was stunned to see a shot of Groucho at the table at the McCarthy blacklisting hearings well he was in the committee for and, the uh, first uh, amendment he was in that or he, he he had joined up it, yeah. he had joined up with that organization that john houston helped found when his grout when groucho's session with the master uh, with uh, senator mccarthy um he uh he said well those are my principles huh? and if you don't like them i have others <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he, wasn't, weren't the feds watching you bet your well, life at one point? The, the, the jokes no aside, the true facts of that story are that they threatened to take his show away if they didn't fire the band leader, a guy named Jerry, Jerry Fielding. Fielding. Yeah, that's a tragic story. And they did fire Jerry Fielding, and years later, Groucho said it was the biggest regret of his life. And Jerry Fielding and Groucho had an estranged relationship for many years, and Fielding did actually attend Groucho's 85th birthday party, and they sort of reconciled but uh, he was told he was going to lose the show if he didn't get rid of him that's wow. the way they did it that's the way they operated Gee. wow 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 yeah but watching that 69 show it's just it's great i mean there's Lydia, the lady of the tattooed lady yeah, and he's he's yeah. still in his in his in full command of his powers yeah i would and say you, that was probably really close to the or the beginning of the last of his prime. Let's yeah, say, yeah I love when Dick talks way. about this. He goes, he captured the, the last of Groucho's greatness, is the phrase I think he used. That was just the way to put it. That that yeah. that show, it's all on well, the He tells the Greta Garbo elevator story. 
which is which is fun. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, with a was, hat. Uh, he, um, I asked him if he ever met Garbo, Garbo and he said yeah. I was like, she was a nice woman and she had big feet, but she was a very nice woman. <laughs> and uh, big feet was not didn't disillusion me about her. They were in an elevator, I think, in the MGM building or something. Yeah, she got and in and he... she got in front of him. Right. And they're facing it, and they were closed. And she's wearing a wide hat, he said. And uh, I took hold of the back rim of her hat, and I pushed it straight up in the air. So the hat went down over her face. And she turned around, and she was furious. And I said, I'm sorry. I thought you were a fellow I knew from New Jersey. <laughs> Cleveland, whatever it was. <laughs> it, it's funny. I became the most fascinated with Groucho from watching the shows that he did with you. Oh, really? Yeah. And and well, when he was already starting to lose it with the golf cap, with the yes, with the three yes, balls on and it, the, the bird. turtleneck uh, right. shirt and the yeah. uh, ill-fitting jacket and. Uh, if you saw the, all of those that you saw in order, you would see a little failing with, with each one. Yeah. And there's a couple of them that are after he started to have minor strokes and he starts to slur a little bit. Yeah. Uh, in some strange way, Muhammad Ali and Groucho Marx have the same experience going through their Dick Cavett show appearances. Ooh. Nice segue. How'd you like that? I, thought, I was smooth. I thought you'd like that, Frank. <laughs> I did that for you. I, 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 remember, we'll get to it. I remember him singing... Drown below, drown below, says the devil talking to his son who wanted to go up above, (laughs) up above. He said it's getting too warm for me down here, and so, and so, I'm going up where I can have some fun. And the devil said, you stay up down here where you belong. The folks who live above you, they don't know right from wrong. <laughs> to say, to share their kings, they've all gone off to war. And not a one of them knows what they're fighting for. Dickie, you having a flashback? <laughs> You're going to release that as a single, I hope. Yeah. We're putting it on the back of a cereal box. I know everyone listening would love to hear you do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. You know the funny By thing... By the way, do you know who wrote that? Irving, Irving Berlin. Berlin. Yeah. And, and, Irving Berlin. And I think, I think they said on this show yeah. that Irving Berlin was really embarrassed by that song and that's why Groucho whenever Irving Berlin was around would yeah. sing that Berlin supposedly said whenever you have the urge to sing that song get in touch with me and I'll give you a hundred dollars every time you don't sing it <laughs> that's a good idea now I I remember a Stan Laurel story I'm wondering if you may have even said it or somebody said it on this show but I heard that you know a Jerry Lewis wanted Stan Laurel to work in his company with him, his production company. Yes, as an idea man at least, or something. That, yeah, yeah, he did. Um, by the time I met him, he of course wasn't really seeing anybody. He could still go out to restaurants, and he, he wasn't enfeebled or anything. But um, 
Jerry Lewis came and visited him in the hospital, and he, in, in a note he sent to me, he said Jerry Lewis came around, and I, uh, it gave me quite a lift. And I showed that to Johnny because he was a great fan of, of, of Laurels, particularly. And he said, isn't that something? Imagine that jackass bouncing around your hospital room. <laughs> <laughs> He took it sentimentally. <laughs> Let, we'll, come oh. back, we'll come back to the Marxists, but let's talk about the Ali documentary. Okay. Since, since Robert did that ever so subtle segue. It wasn't subtle. No, it was good. I loved it. Um, we, Gilbert and I both watched it. Absolutely fascinating. And Dick, it's sweet that you guys actually forged a friendship. Oh, you, I know. As you of said all in, people, if anybody said, you know, you'll... People said, you'll make a lot of famous new friends doing that show. I, I, I made maybe three out of 1,500, <laughs> whatever it was, because you, you knew them from the, you know, you know them from the show. You don't go out and have a hamburger and bowling next day together with Lucille Ball or whoever it is. But Ali, as he continued to come on, and it was impossible not to be taken with him when you first met him, but... I realized this guy is becoming my best friend. Uh, we like each other in a way that um, there are male friendships that, that are harmless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's uh, that's what we really had. Uh, you liked him from the get-go, didn't you? you yeah, just, right you, away. You, you just knew he, something was. He had such uh, a phrase came to me. In fact, that day I remember. When Woody Allen was writing for this, his first day at work at the Sid Caesar show, and he said when Sid walked into the room for the first time, it was like seeing a god. Mm -hmm. And it is true about Sid Caesar, and it was equally, if not more, true about Ali. You just you were lifted into another world when he was there, um, and he was funny and he was intelligent. And just fun to be around. First time I ever saw him was thanks to Jerry Lewis. Uh, I was working for Jerry Lewis on that Jerry Lewis two-hour show. That, oh, uh, yeah. The ill-fated one on, uh, oh, yeah. at the I Jerry just, Lewis Theater. I, I just want to remind Dick that he once told me that working on that show was the television equivalent to being a passenger on the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> I would never say a thing like that. <laughs> well, I didn't think you were going to, so I said yeah, it, it was. You. you could feel it. You were all thinking, well, we're going down steadily. Band still playing. Um, but uh, Jerry was really great on many of them. Others he pissed away so scandalously that it was just horrible to look at. But uh, uh, does anyone remember what I was Oh, my first look at the great one. Not Gleason, but... They said, Ali is here. We were at the Jerry Lewis Theater, which was the formerly El Capitan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Legendary old Hollywood theater near Hollywood and Vine. And they had altered it slightly. They had uh, taken the floor out and put Jerry's face in the floor and stones. And there's Jerry Lewis Theater, of course. And I said, I gotta see Ali. And I left my office and I ran downstairs and went out into the lobby. And there was a group of people on the sidewalk, 10 or 12, and a fight going on. Verbal, real fight between Muhammad Ali and a man who was in the crowd out there. And I thought, this is weird. I don't want to be totally disillusioned. And Ali just 
said some violent things and walked off. And the moment he was out of camera range, knowing the medium as he did, he just laughed. And you saw what a good actor he was. <laughs> he went over and talked to the guy he was supposedly fighting with. But uh, that, that instinct of knowing, they always say Henry Fonda oh, never missed his mark when, in uh, making a movie, knew just where he was. Um, I'll ease it too. Always knew where the camera was. Yeah. yeah. How, did Howard Cosell? He, I heard he was really pissed off at Ali toward the later years. Well, there's that one wonderful bit where they're sort of arguing on camera, and Ali's sort of getting closer and leaning over him a little, and poor Howard says, "You're going to pull my toupee off, aren't you?" He wasn't going to, but he got credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> But I think they they ended up friends. I hope. I think Howard Cosell was one of the guys near the end of Ali's career who was like imploring him not to fight anymore. Especially Holmes. Yeah, yeah nobody yeah. wanted to see that fight. Right, right. Except maybe uh, Ali and the people who he was paying. Um, I think Cosell and Cavett. Cavett actually might have done it first. He was the guy telling him, "You've got to retire. It's enough. You can't take this anymore." Yeah. And you know he would make jokes about it and continue to fight. But Cosell also sort of turned around on boxing and sort of wanted to ban it at certain points. Like Cosell later in his career was speaking about how boxing should be outlawed, probably because of what happened to Ali. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dick, in, one, in the documentary at various points, I mean, you, you said you describe it as, as the sweet science and you said it can be artistic, but it's also brutal. Yeah. And punishing and, and barbaric. And like football players who sit around carving a piece of cheese all day or yeah. something. I just lost yeah, it's a everything. Violent sport. Uh, yeah. Um, it's it's a tough, brutal sport. The head is destroyed by there, uh, there are probably as many boxers who have become it's a boxing term, tomato cans. Yeah, they used to use the term punch drunk punch in the old drunk. in the old days. Yeah. Before and we knew what C T E was. The Sweet Science is the name of the greatest book on boxing. That's just a fact, not an opinion. Um, by A.J. Liebling. Liebling. Yeah. yeah. And it's a killer. And um, The Sweet Science, he relates it to the early, early histories of boxing. And can you believe they fought with no gloves at one point? There was bare-knuckle boxing. Bare-knuckle sure. fighting. Sure, sure. And... I, I remember, too, like when you said punch drunk, it reminded me, like, growing up, every comedian did, like, their punch drunk fighter character. You yeah, know, well, like, ah, I know, that guy. Red Skelton. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Slapsy Maxie yeah. Rosenblum had an acting career. Oh, where he my basic, God, He basically yeah. played yeah. that guy. Yeah. He was yeah. that And guy. he was that guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I never was taken with boxing at all. It was kind of fun to listen to on the radio, but not great. <clears throat> but when I, somebody asked me, you're going to have Ali on. Do you know heavyweight boxing? And I was lucky enough to think to say, my knowledge of uh, heavyweight fighting starts with Lewis and Khan when I was in high school, all the way up to the marriage of Ethel Merman and Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> <laughs> I love that line. Which was apparently <laughs> when, when, that, when the film played at festivals, that was one of the huge audience laughs. It's a great laugh. <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking of the March Brothers, because they did a night at the opera and they tested scenes. They left enough room for the laughs. Mm-hmm. I didn't leave enough room for that laugh. I didn't think it was going to be that enormous, but that's a huge laugh. In the you, film. You're dealing with a pro there. 
Think of the people who don't know who any of the people we've mentioned are. <laughs> well, they, they're probably not listening to this show if they don't. They're, they're hoping Gilbert sings another Irving Berlin classic <laughs> at, at this point. <laughs> Dick, did you get pushback? Uh, uh, I mean, angry mail either. I mean, for, because you were you were giving a forum to this man who oh, was yeah, who I got was so refusing much. to serve, and it's a shock when you get your first hate letter. Uh, I got one last week. <laughs> no, but seriously, folks. Who gets credit for saying, but seriously, folks? Um, some comic. But, uh, yeah, uh, one day, well, I used to see the hate letters that poured in to Jack Parr when mm-hmm. I worked for him. The hate letters that poured into Joey Bishop that came into uh, anybody. Um, there are people out there whose hate is their center of their life, apparently. But Ali was so polarizing, particularly at well, that particularly yeah. at that time. And it might have been either that I had had Ali on, and he had the subject of his uh, avoiding the draft, mm-hmm. denying, refusing to go, uh, angered a large number of people who know whom they're going to vote for in the next election, and uh, they just ironic isn't it I felt kind of sorry I hate to say this I'm and besmirch your show with it but I felt kind of sorry for Donald Trump the other day <laughs> ladies and gentlemen everyone has left this room <laughs> Dick Cavett making no, headlines I just thought, look he's a human he's going through hell and I thought maybe if say Gilbert and I put a little money together went to Tiffany's and had made a set of nice gold heel spurs with his monogram on them. Now I'm going to hide your Make America Great Again hat if you keep this up. I love that that was all a long setup. You you clip things around here, don't you, when they get, get that long? I never, I wrote a lot of nasty tweets about him I can't remember many of them but there was one somebody told me an employee at the White House who disliked him which could be almost anybody who ever met him um, they saw that this leg landed on his desk it was to me quite harmless but it was um, imagine Donald Trump's library you'd have to <laughs> Subtle, yeah. Robert, what stood out at you? Killed when you... everybody in this room. <laughs> <laughs> what what's what jumped out at you when you went through all the Ali shows? There were a couple of things that were really different about Ali's multiple appearances than other people who'd made multiple appearances. How so? There's a progression of two things. Their relationship becomes warm and friendly as it had not been in the earlier appearances because. Cavett lets him come on and say his piece about basically the nation of Islam, which they never mentioned by name on the show, but he's sort of preaching it. Mm-hmm. And his yeah. refusal to go into the army and, you know, one of the early shows, Cavett says, so how do you stand on going to jail? You know, that's kind of where those first interviews were. And then it sort of progresses into a friendship. It's fascinating to watch. But what's also happening is as they become friends, you could see Ali is deteriorating in a little manner of his speaking Mm -hmm. he seems a little bit heavier and slower and 
it's sort of sad in a way to see by the time he's appearing on the show in like 78 and 79, he is not looking like a professional athlete anymore, yet he's still fighting. Yeah. And that's uh, sort of yeah. what Dick was trying to get through to him in that 1978 show after Leon Spinks had beaten him and become the new champion. Dick is pretty much begging him to retire and I'll he's making jokes out of it. And that's when I really started to see what the friendship meant to Cavett because he's not doing that as a television host to be provocative. He's trying to tell his friend to quit. That's fascinating. Yeah, I saw yeah. that. It was very touching, actually. I wish he had. Everybody does. Um, was he? What, did he need money that badly? Was he trying to just stay in the public eye? Was well, he both? Because there was an engine he was feeding. There were many people. The entourage. A There's a lot of people making a living on Muhammad Ali. There's a sports writer in the film who's wonderful named Michael Marley, who used to write for the New York Post for many years, and. Um, Marley says he never saw anybody with a hand in Ali's pocket pushing him towards retirement. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Good it's way. fascinating too what Good you're saying. The, the early shows sticks a little. You're, you're, he almost puts you a little bit on the defensive because he's talking about the white race being inherently evil. Yeah, and that's that's early in the game. Yep. Yeah, for and it's when he's when he's also at his most defensive, mm-hmm. and you can see the the trust over the course of these interviews building between these two guys it becomes the whole thing becomes less contentious the dick cavett you're making show, me want to see this special <laughs> <laughs> the dick cavett show was a big change for ali going on shows because he had been greeted less warmly elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, i believe it was david suskind who just called him a phony and um jerry mm-hmm. lewis even in the show where he would just be being on a funny comic show calls him a blowhard and says he's not really what he says he is you know he didn't go on these shows and get a totally fair shake because there was a large part of the country that just hated him for what he was standing up for. Yeah. Lucky he survived all that. Um, Not just survived, he, was, he, tur- he turned it around. I mean, yeah. this guy went from half the country hating him to everybody loving him by the time you know it's all over. I mean, he's a venerable, beloved figure. Now, nobody ever th- thinks or talks about him not going... Now everybody says he was right about Vietnam. You know, then you couldn't find you know ten people to say he was right. Sure, and he was courageous at what, the time. What I remember with him, like with a lot of these celebrities, uh, where they the friends and family uh, go out in public to say, "Oh, he's just as quick, and he's just as witty as ever," and you know, yeah. if you sat with him and uh, you haven't lost any bit of it. Yeah, yeah. How did you find Frazier? I mean, you, you get the sense that you you liked Joe Frazier, too. And you had him on the show. I was very fond of Frazier. Many times. Yeah, and I knew he could be trouble. Um, he was a, a tragic man in many ways. He There was the thought, of course, always in his mind and who and any other fighters, that if it weren't for Ali, I would... It's like what Jack Nicholson said about Brando. When Brando dies, every actor moves up one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and true a bit about a, a boxer, too. Fraser, um, you could feel nasty feelings in him quite clearly sitting with him. There was even a scary moment, it's in the documentary, where um, Muhammad having a great time irking 
Fraser said they called him Roy, but called him Boy and B uh, as in Boy, B O Y. And Fraser took hold of the arm of the chair, as I recall, and started to get up. At least that was the sense of what happened. And of course, Ali said, "I said Roy. I said Roy." <laughs> yeah, that's a funny moment in the doc. Yeah, yeah, but Fraser in that show seems like he's not in on the joke. He's angry, and he is tired yeah. of Ali painting him as you know, sure. Even yeah, the Uncle Tom figure that he he liked to paint him as. And Frazier was deeply hurt by it. And at the end of his life, Frazier was pretty bitter about it. He was. People would ask him about Ali's condition when Ali could barely speak and he was pretty much incapacitated. And Frazier would just say good for him. You know, it's kind of a horrible end for Frazier to be that bitter. Was it hard, Dick, when he came on? He came on after defeats. He came on after Norton broke his jaw. Yeah. He came on after the first Frazier fight when his face blew up. Was it hard to see your friend? It was going hard. through it was that. A good, good word for it. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen him before the show. I just came down as the show started and said hello. And it wasn't until he sat down that I noticed how swollen. It was as if you had a hand to your cheek. Only there was no hand there. It was the cheek. Um, and he was sad. And what he says, you can see it on the documentary, is, "Ah, uh, oh, Dick, I'm just an old broke down fighter." You're the only one. No other show called me. You're the only one. And then I got the award of my life. Dick, you're my main man. Yeah, that's sweet. (laughs) You know, the crazy thing about that is this shows you how much Ali really liked him because he could have gotten on any show anywhere after that fight, and the only one he went on was the Dick Cavett show. Every show would have killed to get him. And it's not true that he was the only one that invited him. Yes. It was the only yes. one Ali would do. Yeah. You guys are practically a comedy team at certain points. I mean, when you went, when you went to the, the, the training facility in Pennsylvania, oh, and he's, giving, God, he's yes. giving you shit about watching Carson over your show. Well, that was... He that knew was how to great. gaslight you, too. He was so hard to say. I can't even use this word. He was so cute. You uh-huh. can say it about him <laughs> uh, at times. And so funny and a cute ornery childish way we were going through his cabin on his training camp he had had a a theme of old west architecture and he and he had learned that word antique not just recently obviously but it seemed like it because he would say dick i want to see my old antique pump and this is my old antique chair this is my old antique table and this is my old antique whatever and I, it was at that point that I said, what do you do when you're in here? He said, well, I have television. But, I, you know, I like to watch talk shows, you know, as Johnny Carson. <laughs> <laughs> and he almost slipped it past me. <laughs> and did, he was so pleased at his joke. Did you know Sonny Liston? No, uh, I, I'm, I have thought that I must have met him once in a group of fighters um, at somebody's party somewhere in Long Island. Uh, um, he may have been there. That's the most I can say. But I remember that Liston fight. My God. Yeah. When, well, the one where he, he was down in yeah. the first minute, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I know Bob Hope said I arrived late and Liston sat down before I did. <laughs> <laughs> was that the one with the phantom punch? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You had Floyd Patterson, you had Joe Lewis. I mean, for a guy that wasn't a boxing fan, you had all of these people on the show. Yeah, I don't know how I got so lucky. Uh, 
You know, the lead-up to the Ali Frazier fight, boxers were, uh, were all over the place telling how they thought Ali had no chance. And that was what Joe Lewis and Sugar Ray Robinson both pretty much said on the Cabot Show. Mm-hmm. And, of course, to Ali's great happiness, Cosell predicted that he would not have a chance in that fight either. Right. You know, he loved when people would predict that he was going to lose. He right. just loved it. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. We bounce around a lot. We'll come back to Ali. But since you brought up Joey Bishop in passing before, <laughs> I think I think Gilbert and I have been trying to solve this or, or get an answer to this question for months and months. Oh, yeah. Why was Joey Bishop so disliked? Because that's that seems to be... You, did you like him? Because jo- the, Joey, Joey Bishop. <laughs> well, uh, the sarcasm. That's my heart. I never heard anything like that. I, I don't know. I guess he was kind of a pig. In <laughs> um, 300 shows, we haven't heard a kind word about that. Yeah, the yeah <laughs> there's like two. Uh, there's uh, Joey Bishop and Danny Kay. Not have not heard anything positive. Never anything. We even heard at least two or three good things about Jerry Lewis. Oh God, yes. <laughs> Which, but those are from Jerry. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> but but Danny Kay and Joey Bishop, nothing. I know, and Danny Kay was the greatest thing in the world to me as a kid. You know, the court jester and the flagon with the dragon and the callus from the palace and all that stuff. And I just thought he was fabulous. The English still do. They worship Danny. There was a comic on Sullivan one night who was from England. And he said, you know, we have three classes in England. We have the lower class, the working class, and those who have met Danny Kay. And it's that way there. He was just a god over there. One night, Here's an, another unpleasant person. Are you watching The Crown at all? Uh, you're old enough to know the, the phrase the Duchess of Windsor. She was not the most delightful person, apparently. And <laughs> he came out of his dressing room in his play in London, and they said, you know, you've got that party tonight. And he said, oh, God, I forgot. Where is it? And this so-and-so hotel, so went to the ballroom there. And there was the royal family, all the royal heads of the theater, the great actors, the comedians, everybody was there in tuxedos and tiaras and the women and um just elegant elegant quintessence of elegant crowd and danny Kay had an ill-fitting brown suit that he'd worn to the theater the duchess of winder noticed and said well still trying to be terribly funny mr k and he looked at her and said and you too ma'am <laughs> People applauded and just standing by. She, so, she so, went home so in Frank, tears. Do you have a separate email address for the lawsuits to come in? Sure, <laughs> sure. We don't worry about that. So, you know, we, we keep hearing nice things about Benny Dick, of course, who you knew. And everyone, yeah. has, everyone has loving, wonderful, warm things to say about Jack Benny and not too many nice things to say about Kay or Bishop. It seems to be a, yeah, what, a, uh, I, a recurring I, theme. I, I, I wrote for, Jer- for, for both, both Jerry and Bishop, but... Um, Bishop on the Tonight Show, uh, and I, I never had any trouble with him. Really, okay. One of, the, one of his writers, though, decided to cash it in one night. Left off his, went into you, you went into the star's office from Jack Parr on and Johnny, and you laid your monologue on their desk and you left. Fred, my friend Fred, went in to Joey, with whom he had worked for some time and had had it, and he just 
took the monologue, went right past Mr. Bishop and placed it in the wastebasket himself and left. Now, you shouldn't, you shouldn't tamper with, I'd say, comedy writers. Is anyone here old enough to remember Robert Q. Lewis? Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sure. He, uh, he was always a substitute for Arthur Godfrey, and he had a funny kind of look and glasses. And um, he happened to have stigmata. Uh, what are uh, what is it we call those things? When smallpox victims still have them on their face, uh, sort of little crater. He had scarring and yeah, yeah. That, that kind of scarring. And he had it, but he had I think nose putty or something sort of putty knifed over it so it didn't show on television but it was apparently not pleasant to look at in real life anyway he was nasty to some writer for the fourth or fifth time ordered him to his office he went down he said I'm leaving why because I I I can't even say it I just had enough of you I'm leaving and he went to the door paused for a moment and said um Bob, Lewis, what's par for your right cheek? (laughs) (laughs) The things that stay with you. (laughs) Jackie Gleason was hard on right. Yes, that's what we heard. Yeah. And he, in that same moment, said, "Uh, I'm not waiting any longer. I've waited for an hour. I'm sick of Jackie. Tell him I'm leaving. I'm going home. You know, Jackie... Gleason was abandoned by his uh, yes. father as a kid. But anyway, so uh, the guy says, oh, uh, what if Mr. Gleason comes out and finds that you're not here or waiting? And the guy said, um, tell him his dad dropped by. <laughs> oh! oh. oh. <laughs> Vengeful comedy writers. There must be others. <laughs> oh, jeez. Tell them... Uh, I can't remember who the writer was. The guy that had the great line about Paul Keyes. Uh, tell them who your friend Paul Keyes was. Oh, yeah. Was he, was he writer, writer for Nixon, for Paul, Paul Keyes? Speechwriter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of his best credits. Um, <laughs> he was... Uh, well, I wasn't going to mention it, but uh, what I was going to actually say was people ask you, who's the worst person you ever worked with in show business? And Danny Kaye would sometimes be it, and so, a couple others. And there was a man who was Jack Parr's head writer, and he was nasty, and I knew it. Mr. Woody Allen said, you're going to meet one of the worst people in the world when you start work tomorrow with the Jack Parr show. And I met him. He was a glad-handing, knifing, uh, gossipy, uh, anyway, this, this guy. When I talk about him in public and I've said just that much, I say, I don't want to say his name, of course, but uh, his initials are Paul Keyes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I he heard a, Gleason, aside from the writers hating him, I've heard other bad things yeah. about Jackie Gleason. Name two. <laughs> <laughs> Strangling people's pets. Yeah. And that sort did, of thing. did you know Gleason at all? Who? Uh, Jackie Gleason. Oh, no, Gleason, yeah. Show. Yeah, I, I did a couple of shows yeah. with him. He loved doing them. They were done at his great house in Florida. And uh, I, I, I got along fine with him. I used to sneak into his show 
before I ever met him, when I was just making rounds as an out-of-work actor in New York, and I saw the Gleason studio, and I went and got a CBS envelope, a big one, and I went in and I said to the doorman, how's it going today? And he saw my CBS envelope and he let me in. <laughs> um, watching Gleason rehearse was wonderful. I'll bet. He knew everybody's lines. If anybody went up, as they say, went blank, he would tell them what the line was. Not nasty. Here's but what a con- I said to somebody once, what was it about Gleason as a fine, fine actor? They said he's one of the handful of actors in the world who never makes a false move. He was a good dramatic actor. Yeah. 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 This is something I learned from watching, from doing research and watching old Dick Cavett shows. And uh, Bader will know what I'm talking about. That Orson Welles met Hitler as a child? I'm going to have to look that up. Somebody <laughs> referred to that in an article, and he did on a show of Yes. Mine, talk about having met Hitler. He claimed he met FDR. He claimed yeah. he met right. Churchill. Yeah. Was George, this a tall tale, Robert? I, I, think, I think Wells had to give Dick his money's worth because yeah. we can tell this now, but Orson would not appear on your show for scale. Oh. Shh, don't. Well, you can. The statute of limitations is up on this. <laughs> tell them what you had to do to get this. I guy. don't know if the statute of limitations has run out on this through the various unions and guilds, but I thought Orson. Wells is going to be on the show. I will see him in person. I will touch the hem of his garment. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> he did a few. Yeah, <laughs> he did several. Yeah, but he said, um, my producer said, we, we aren't necessarily going to have Orson, I'm afraid. Uh, the scale on the show was something like 360 mm-hmm. uh, per yeah, guest or something. Like he wanted a little more. He wanted 5,000. Wow. And uh, that it was determined that we didn't dare give it to him because if anybody found out, all those people that appeared for scale, the unions. To this day, I don't actually know if he got all of the 5,000, but he got a hefty increase. Interesting. In everybody else in the business got. Uh, and, and he was certainly worth it, boy. Was, was Austin Wells at that point was was he still interested in show business, or had he given up on it? He had kind of... Well, there, there are several classically known pissed-away careers. Brando's, Orson Welles, others who for some reason eventually toward the end just didn't honor their talent, didn't do stuff that was worthy of them. Did junk and Fred Orson was was one of those people. I, I don't know much more about it. God knows he was brilliant. He always had unfinished uh, projects. He was looking sure. his money for. There was always the, yeah. There was always something going on in his career, but he just seemed more committed to you know picking up some quick cash on the Dean Martin roast or something like that. By the yeah. way, on the on the Groucho Capote episode, Dick turns to Capote and says, "When are we going to see that new novel, Answered Prayers?" Which he never finished. <laughs> That's right. He di- he he said it'll be my posthumous novel. Joke, Did it jokingly. never ever no, appear? No, no. Unf- well, then and I, I know what happened. A, a big excerpt appeared in something like maybe Vanity Fair, and that named enough people that he didn't dare offend. I see. The highest level of, of the Paley family and people in show business, and uh, they hated him. It ruined his life. 
It was a big decline from that point. Watching him and Groucho together on that 71 show is a, is a treat. Yeah, well, that, that had a special aspect to it because um, he <laughs> Groucho decided to join in with, we had several guests and Truman, Groucho saying crazy stuff. And he said to Truman, um, uh, uh, asked, found out if he was not married and offered proposed marriage to yes that's <laughs> that is awkward you know this is an interesting thing because i mean i told this to dick i knew one of johnny's ex-wives pretty well i knew joanne carson mm-hmm. yeah. the second former mrs carson mm-hmm. and she told me that when cavett and carson were both doing the show in new york there was a lot of competition for guests and truman was really a carson guest but joanne was best friends with the guy and when joanne and johnny got divorced Truman stayed friends with Joanne, and Johnny was pissed off, so Cavett got custody of Truman in the divorce. That's yes. fascinating. He was, my, <laughs> he was my little boy. And, and speaking uh, of uh, the Mox Brothers... <laughs> That's a great right. transition. That's, I love that one. <laughs> yeah. Here comes something. <laughs> no, I, I... And speaking of people who a lot of people dislike... Now, I heard a lot of people... I uh, had nothing but bad things to say about Zeppo. Zeppo was a Zeppo. very complex guy, and I've been becoming great friends with one of his sons the last few years. And Zeppo was just a difficult guy because I think he always got the short end of the stick from his brothers. You know, when he came into the act, they were already famous. I wish you were telling me outside. They would never make him a full partner. They never made him a full partner in the business. They kept him on salary, and he was determined to quit. And while their parents were alive, he could never pull it off because they insisted he stay. He was bitter about that forever. He proved to them that he could be successful on his own by becoming a very successful agent, made a lot of money in business, was an inventor, had a lot of patents. But he was always out to prove that he was as good as he could be to them. And he was also a really hardcore gambler, and more so than Chico. And Chico's daughter, who I know Gilbert knew Maxine, uh, he used to creep her out by calling her up and doing Old Man Groucho on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> we established that, yes. So, so she explained to me the difference. Chico loved to gamble because he liked to have action. Zeppo liked to gamble because he wanted to take your house. Wow. He, he was just a ruthless gambler, and he was out to get people when he gambled. Yeah. And his son even told me that he was kind of like that. It was all about being very competitive. He, he spent his whole life trying to prove to his brothers that he was good and worthy. And he probably overcompensated. And Chico was pretty much his role model as his father figure, which made him like a junior gangster. Right. And there's a great story about when Chico got married for the second time in 1958. Zeppo was going to be his best man, but he couldn't attend the wedding because he was subpoenaed in a federal racketeering case in Indiana. And he was in court. Ooh. Right. Yes. I, like, I like the Gummo story, too, where they, where they call him. Was it somebody in the IRS was looking for Chico? Oh, and they yeah. called. They said we can't find Chico, and Gummo said, "Well, you're not looking too hard. He's either on a broad or a horse." <laughs> <laughs> That's a good title for a biography. Yeah, a broad or a horse. Or horse. It's also sad. Speaking of not paying or paying scale, uh, Dick, it breaks my heart to 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 realize that that Zeppo never came on the Cavett show because he because he wanted more money. I called him, and people said Zeppo's got stories that make all the other Marx Brothers stories pale by comparison. Bet he so, did. And I called him and, uh, in Vegas, and we had a lovely chat, animated and so on. 
And he said, but what do I want to come do television for? I got my house down here, and I've got my boat, and I got my friends, I got card games, I got everything I need. What do I want to come to New York? And uh, I wonder if we offered Zeppo $5,000. <laughs> Is it too late? <laughs> he might have told you he met Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I, I think I ever heard the name Groucho Marx uttered was by my father, who was just the right age for when Marx Brothers' first movie came out. It would come to town, and he said, you always thought that people laughed so hard they fell out of their seats. It was true in those days. People would just laugh. And I, I said, the main one is named Groucho Marx. and uh, So then I read a book about him, but... I said, do you remember you're the first person to ever say the name Groucho Marx to me? What? And he said, well, you said that once Groucho walking down a street in Hollywood and a woman came up and said, ooh, Mr. Marx, tell me, are you Zeppo or Harpo? <laughs> <laughs> and Groucho said, well, I was about to ask you the same question. I get I, the... Go I, ahead, Gil. I remember, I just had a flashback, I was working with you... Ah, uh, Dick, and um, we were we went we were staying at the same hotel. Yeah. And I remember I just started doing my old senile Groucho imitation, right. and I chased you down the hallway. <laughs> you were like rushing back to your room, and I started following you the whole time doing <laughs> the senile Groucho. And when you got back to your room. I then called up from the phone in the hallway. And when you answered, I just like, uh, I remember Nunley Johnson. <laughs> Nunley Johnson. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's what makes it. How do you dare admit these things? <laughs> yes. Nunley Johnson. You have a memory of this, Dick? Of him of him stalking you? Nunley Johnson? No, Gilbert. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Even today, I suddenly I'll turn quickly and see if Gilbert is behind me, going, "My brother Chekhov," and he does his his senile Groucho. I've missed him with rocks every time I've tried. Speaking of Gilbert impressions, uh, you interviewing James Mason on the Cavett Show, you said was a turning point show for you. Do you remember saying this? About the but, fact that when it first broke into just going notes, question, notes, question. Yeah, that you said that show, you remember that that show was a kind of a turning, and half of this is a cheap uh, yes. uh, segue into Gilbert doing his James Mason impression. Yeah. But you said that was kind of a turning point where Jack Parr's advice Jack kicked Parr, in for to you. my amazement, called me on the telephone in my apartment <clears throat> about three weeks before I started doing 90-minute show on ABC. And he said, kid, when you do this show, let me give you some advice. Don't do interviews. And I did a silent take over the phone. <laughs> you know, what do I do, sing to them or read uh, Beowulf to them or what do I do? And he said, no, no, don't do interviews. That's Q&A and who's your favorite this. And that, it's just facts. It's just boring. Uh, Make it a conversation, and of course that's it. I mean, and that's that was the show. 
I had learned that uh, with James Mason. I think it was the first time it really happened. Did yeah. you used to do James Mason as Ralph Cramden? Ah, uh, yes. With well, Richard Burton as, as Norton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come on, lay a little and, of it on, Dick. And, and okay, let me see if I still remember this. Check your memory book. Okay. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I used to do, you know, The Honeymooners, the motion picture. Uh, James Mason as Ralph Crampton. Alice Norton and I are going bowling. <laughs> it's the, the Raccoon Lodge is having a big bowling tournament. And then we're going bowling tonight. Isn't that right, Norton? <laughs> yes, Ralphie boy. <laughs> and then and Jack Nicholson as Alice. <laughs> You're not fucking going bowling, Ralph. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> Wish you could see wish you guys could see Dick's face. I can, I can sort of do certain actors from hearing Gilbert do them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the only time I've ever done one that he did was I was watching the television tonight that James Mason's commercial for what wine? Thunderbird Oh, yes. Wine, yes, he did God. Thunderbird commercial. Yes. He's in a dinner jacket in the God. Caribbean somewhere on a moonlit patio with his glass, like Orson Welles did in his commercial. Yes. For, yeah. His was Almaden, wasn't it? Jeez. He what? Orson Welles for like Almaden, I think was the line. <laughs> I just remember that, that commercial oh, It was one of the... Where Orson Welles yeah. was sh- totally Oh, yeah. That's a great one. That's on YouTube. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, I figured the French. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing these people, they always had a little table, they had a little glass, and... Um, James Mason, I just can't, this is a joke. It must be a, a sketch I've tuned into. No, it's James Mason doing Thunderbird 1. He must have had a couple of alimonies piled <laughs> up. And uh, there he was, elegant James Mason. And I decided this next time I saw it, clearly he wrote the last line himself. Because he held up the glass of Thunderbird and said, and I have to tune uh, Gilbert into my larynx now. <laughs> I promise you, you've never tasted anything quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I oh. remember That's hilarious. James Mason. I, I'm wondering if it was on your show that uh, another connection with Hitler, that James Mason saw some of Hitler's paintings... That rings a faint bell. Wow. And and whoever it was may have been you who said, and how would you rate his paintings? Mm-hmm. And James Mason said, if you walk through Greenwich Village in New York on any weekend, you'll, you'll see quite a number of Hitlers on the streets. <laughs> Gilbert, you're impressing me. <laughs> Hitler was not a bad painter. That's an odd thing to say in public. But, uh, he was an uh, architect student, and uh, some of his paintings for architecture are very, very good 
straightforward paintings of a street or something. And there are some people in them, but they're weirdly distorted. Ah! Dick, just just for consistency's sake, give us a little bit of your Richard Liu, which you did on our very first podcast. That's good. (laughs) I've told you never, never to bring that out. (laughs) When I was in the village, I had an act. And I did my act, and the first time I did it, I said, you, you, you know, you got another show tonight. I said, oh, God, I just got through my first act. You need a second show. <laughs> and I did a couple more jokes, and then I hit upon something. I'd been thinking that day how much I loved the actor Richard Liu, whose face you would instantly recognize from Back to Bataan and First Yank into Tokyo and I've 30, World War II, and he played an ja- evil Japanese colonel or whatever. But his voice is, <clears throat> is quite recognizable. Mm. And I found I could do it. So my second act for this paralyzed audience <laughs> in the village was uh, 15 minutes of talking about Richard Liu like this, which put almost the, put the dog to sleep, uh, who lay on the floor at this club. But then I gave him my thrill. I said, I know you will recognize this voice, and the face will come to you, unless you're six years old. And I said, uh, I'd say to somebody, uh, Oh, here, you be Dana Andrews, and you say to me, <laughs> because he and all his men had been captured by Richard Liu. Can he do Dana Andrews? No, not really. <laughs> that's my famous. That, that's what all the audience it'll comes have to, to be, see. It'll have to be David Brenner yeah. I, I really well, okay. setting up Richard Liu. That, that would be really impressive. <laughs> well, it's only the content of the line, which is, uh, you'll never get any of my men to talk, Colonel Mitsubi. They're going to torture okay. them. Okay. You'll never get any of my men to talk, Colonel Masubi. I must remind you, Captain, that a chain is no stronger than its weaker strength. Weaker strength. (laughs) (laughs) They put Richard Liu as a surprise to me on my show. Everybody had a secret, and I couldn't imagine. Oh, that's great. And they said, they just handed me, we had a guest fall out, and they just handed me, who's coming on? And I introduced him breathlessly, and the band, of course, was bong, 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 dong, 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 bah, gone. And Richard Liu was standing there, and he walked over and said, Mr. Cavett, we have reason to believe that you came from an aircraft carrier of the Hornet variety. <laughs> I just got some goose flesh now. You know, Dana Andrews was on that show about when, when you, Dick was in Los Angeles doing a play a few years ago, and I set this up for him. I set up the tape of that show, and I said, sit down, look at this, and his mind was just completely blown from seeing Richard Liu and doing Richard Liu to Richard Liu. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what, what a lovely like, man. Wrote me thank you notes. I had him on a couple times, but I still get goose flesh when he comes on the screen. His voice, I remember to get it, I thought, <clears throat> this will sound crazy. It's a little bit up where Catherine Hepburn's voice is. Hello, I'm, uh, it's up in there, so 
I must remind you, Captain. It's a little bit of that. I'm, I'm slightly hoarse at the moment. Dick, so you Dick is on our very first show. He was of that time period, like World War II, when they would hire the Chinese actors yes, to be the evil irony. Japanese. While they were murdering his family back home, he was playing them on the screen. Yeah. Dick, did I read somewhere that you had an uncanny ability to recognize character actors on the street? Does this mean anything to you? I seem to. It's not so amazing to me, but it was amazing to me that other people didn't. Right. When I first came to New York, I just walked the streets looking for famous people. <laughs> and I, I saw just about everybody. Do you do a little and John I Carradine? Would, uh, well, I would say, uh, look, look, Ed, don't you recognize Eduardo Cianelli? <laughs> Eduardo Cianelli. <laughs> I would recognize him in a minute. Did you see Henry Armetta? (laughs) You would in a second. (laughs) We've made 150 movies. I saw you uh, at the 92nd Street Y with Alec Baldwin, and you you told a John Wayne story, and in telling the John Wayne story, you did a little bit of John Carradine. Did I? Yes, which I think Gilbert would appreciate. A bit of John Carradine. Oh. I wormed my way onto the location of the shootest... John Wayne's last film, Western. Yeah, that's and the one. As I walked over there, where all the old buildings were and the old streetcar, and, and there was a chair with John Carradine's name, and as if by magic, he came kind of walking, but he had a lot of arthritis, but he'd sat down, and he was just sitting there, and I thought, I got it. I must have something to say to John Carradine. Who <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't? Um, and the Duke came by, Mr. To, to uh, naive people, that, that's uh, John Wayne. The Duke came by, hey, Duke. And Carradine, as the Duke passed his chair, John, John Wayne looked at him and said, hey, John. And Carradine said, hey, hello, Duke. What is this? Is this number four, number seven? I can't decide. Movies they'd made together. <laughs> but I don't think I hit John Carradine just now. So I'm going to ask you to do him. <laughs> can't do John Carradine. Hello, Duke. It was rather a horse for Close enough. You know, um, Frank, I yeah. do this for you, but I can turn any conversation back to the Marx Brothers like that. Cool. Do now, it. The, the bit that... Because I got questions here for the, you from the, some fans. The John Carradine role in Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex, the Woody Allen film, was written for Groucho. And he what? Wow! And Did you know that, Gil? Oh no! Was written Wait. for Groucho, and Groucho at that point was a little bit uh, past remembering lines and doing that sort of work, and he just wasn't up to well, it. Well, Aaron's in it. Yeah, I think yeah. that Aaron, Aaron, part Aaron of the Fleming's deal. In the I movie. think that was part of the deal, actually. But, right, right. Um, it was conceived for Groucho, and Carradine had to come and into it. I, I think Lon Chaney Jr. went up for that part because there was an audition I read about. Yeah. They were a Lon Chaney Jr. audition for Woody Allen. Well, I'm pretty sure Aaron got the gig because Groucho agreed to do it. And yeah. then Groucho had to pull out and Aaron stayed. Here's a quick uh, here's a quick Marx Brothers question for you, the expert, from listener Mike Herman. Uh, for Robert Bader, what is true and untrue about the unmade film A Day at the United Nations? That is the what, Billy Wilder project. What's true that, is it was a treatment that was written and at that point in their career, nobody could get insurance on Chico because he was very sick and near death and I don't think it was ever seriously on the radar for them to actually do it. Hmm. I think they were listening. I don't Interesting. Think, 
I think Groucho right. really didn't want to do the Marx Brothers anymore. Even past you know the late forties, sure, Groucho didn't want to do the Marx Brothers anymore. And Harpo had plenty of money. And the oft-repeated phrase altogether now. Chico needed the money. <laughs> yeah. Steve White asks, uh, hey, Robert Vader, did Groucho ever get any money from that Vlasic Pickle company for the likeness yes, to the he stork did. mascot? Oh. Yes, that was a license that I believe still exists to this day. So if they run those commercials, I do believe they pay him. And Pat Harrington did the voice of the uh, stork in those, but Groucho was paid. Good stuff. Rich and, Nolan, and, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Gil. What, what was the story of how... <laughs> It was very strange in the movie uh, uh, Story of Mankind that it was the Marx Brothers and but separate it, actors. It took a particular genius from God. Irving Allen to get the three of them and not have them appear together. Yes. That's strange. But I also think it was um, Groucho's desire not to work with them at that point as the Marx Brothers. So. Yeah. Hmm. Here's one from Megan Reinhardt for you, Dick. What was it actually like being in the room with Erin Fleming? Did she ri- ever rise to the level of elder abuse, or were there those close enough to protect Groucho? Go to hell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I confused her with someone else. I confused her with the woman who wrote to me from uh, Waco, Texas, was it, Martha? Yeah, yeah. Waco turns out to be one of the world capitals of hate mail, and um, I remember knowing that when I worked for Jack Parr. And other, my secretary tried to hide a note, and I said, okay, let me see it. I might have had Ali on, or I might have had Jane Fonda on, or somebody else who might have spoken about Vietnam, or something that of that nature. Waco, Texas. Dear Dick Cavett, you little sawed-off faggot communist shrimp. <laughs> communist shrimp. I, I, there was a return address. I wrote back, I'm not sawed-off. <laughs> Isn't that right? So could you answer his question about Aaron Fleming? Do you want to answer the question about Aaron Fleming or you want to skip it? Uh, what was it like to be in her company? Was it unsettling in some way? Yes, I... Uh, I got along with Aaron Fleming, which sort of apparently put me in a rare category, but uh, she was controversial with how she treated Groucho. Those who, a few people liked her and said she at least got him out of bed and he did things and he did Carnegie Hall and she got him to do this and that. In that sense, she was good. She was also uh, suffering with a load of mental personality problems that plagued her and there was a sad a sad life in a way. yeah she did she, she did she did come to a to a very she, sad end she wound up being homeless i think she, yeah she wound up being homeless and then wound up shooting herself yeah yeah Here's one for Bader before we get out of here, because these guys have to go do uh, Stephen Colbert show. Peter Blitzstein, uh, what was the most surprising thing you discovered about the Marxes in writing four of the Three Musketeers? You know, the blacklisting in their early career was really revelatory because it explained so much about why they continued to play, well, on this show I could say it, shitholes after they were famous. Mm -hmm. And they forced 
the business of vaudeville to let them back in because they were making so much money for the renegade theater circuits. That was kind of a big surprise because I never really put that together until I really dug deep in. But yeah, the fact that they got blacklisted twice, which is perfect because they're the Marx Brothers. They should get do things to get themselves blacklisted. Yeah. But that was, you know, the real story for me that surprised me. Very interesting. That is surprising. Mr. Blitzstein also has one last question for Dick Cavett. Why in God's name did you ever agree to be Gilbert's first guest on this podcast? <laughs> it's a long story. You, you lost a bet. He <laughs> took me out the night before <laughs> and threatened to reveal what we did that night. And he still threatens it. <laughs> Before you guys get out of here, uh, tell us about the documentary. It's going to be on HBO. Yeah. It, February uh, 11th. It premieres on February 11th. And, you know, I'll just say this. Um, I decided that this film needed to be made after reading these two blog pieces Dick wrote about Ali for the New York Times. And looking at the shows and just reading those two pieces, I said, this needs to be a movie because it's kind of the weirdest buddy picture you'll ever see. It's wonderful. Yeah, and I want to recommend uh, Cavett's Watergate as well, Yeah, which is terrific and strangely timelier than ever. You know, there's so many topics within the archive of the Dick Cavett show that are film-worthy that uh, I got to keep making them. So yeah. we're going we're gonna to look forward to a Cavett one? I mean, excuse me, a, a Groucho one? I'm working on Cavett and Groucho. Ne- nearly done, yeah. And that'll be really a fun film for a March. I, I saw fan. some of it, and it's terrific. You know, the night he proposed marriage to Truman Capote, he was wearing that fabulous golf hat, mm-hmm. that white bill, and it had two little golfers knitted on it, and uh, three little knitted golf balls. And as I remember it, and maybe this was off camera, uh, Groucho, in pursuing the idea of marrying Truman, uh, Truman said, I can never marry a man who's got three balls on his hat nobody heard the three ball on his hat part (laughs) three balls gets the laugh I didn't know what they were laughing at we could talk to you guys forever well didn't we Gil what do you think here's one last one I'm gonna squeeze it in did Groucho turn down being in a Fellini movie allegedly I don't know for a fact that that was really offered to him I think Aaron said that Mm. And I think Erin said it at the Cannes Film Festival, so maybe that's why she said it. We have one. Yeah. We have one minute. Can Dick tell the uh, Tallulah Bankhead story to go out on? Oh my God! Which one? The Chico one. Chico oh, meets Tallulah. Yeah. Chico <laughs> wanted desperately to meet Tallulah Bankhead, and when she first came to America, she was the star of the world. Uh, Political family from the South, dazzling big-name actress. She was wanted on every Life magazine cover and such things. She was it. And Chico wanted to meet her. Groucho got them together somewhere, a party or something, and said, uh, Miss Bankhead, this is my brother Chico. Chico, Miss Tallulah Bankhead. And he said, I want to fuck you, Miss Bankhead. <laughs> and she said, to her eternal credit, and so you shall, you old-fashioned boy. <laughs> <laughs> Never get tired of hearing that one. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs>
What do you think, Gil? Uh, okay, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We've been talking to uh, expert on all things Marxian, Robert Bader. And we've also... <laughs> Don't do it to me. talking to Dick Harvard. Now, Dick is an abbreviation of Richard. Like, if you don't want to say Richard, you say Dick. Now, some people would just call him by his last name. In that case, they would use the word Mr. in front of it and say, Excuse me, Mr. Cabot, can I have your photograph? And, and Mr. Cabot would sometimes, when they'd speak to him, would recognize his own name and would respond uh. to them because that's what people do. When most people have a name, <laughs> that the other people call them. Some people also have an address, and an address is a place where people live. <laughs> so if I were to say to someone, what's your address? Dick, you could stop him any time. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't need to put up with this sort of thing. I think he went till he kills over and dies. <laughs> I've got to get across town. But you're still wonderful. (laughs) 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 Thank you, Joe. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. Eyes that men adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo, beside it the wreck of the Hesperus, too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. When a robe isn't fail, she will show you the world If you'll step up and tell her where For a dime you can see Kankakee or Paris Or Washington crossing the Delaware <laughs> Oh Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia? Oh Lydia, the tattooed lady when her muscles start relaxing, up the hill comes Andrew Jackson. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the champ of them all. For to bet she will do a mosaic in jazz with a view of Niagara 
that nobody has And on a clear day you can see Alcatraz You can learn a lot from Lydia la, la, la. Come along and see Buffalo Bill with his lasso Just a little classic by Mendel Picasso Here's Captain Exploring, exploring the Amazon Here's Godiva, but with her pajamas on Oh Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia? Oh Lydia, the champ of them all she once swept an admiral clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia. I said Lydia. He said Lydia. I said Lydia. He said Lydia. 